I stopped taking Time magazine a number of years ago because of its uh, very liberal stance. And uh, yet I was this week in the doctor's office. And while I was there, I noted this magazine. It's the May 7th copy. Very graphic. <clears throat> it has the title, Dirty Words. America's Foul-Mouthed Pop Culture. It has a graphic picture of a human mouth. And out of it is coming fire, daggers, and swords, and lightning, and sexual symbols, and chains, and guns, and bombs, and death. And the story that is in the magazine tells about what's happening. And I'm not going to read the whole story, but some of it is very apropos to what I want to say today. It's entitled X-Rated Language. He struts on stage and 17,000 New Yorkers start to cheer. Andrew Dice Clay tells jokes for a living. Dirty jokes. Stag party jokes. Jokes designed to singe a churchgoer's soul and turn a feminist stomach. But he attracts crowds whose size and ardor would thrill a rock star. He's America's Rajah of comic raunch, ready to beguile fans who dress like him and talk like him and who have memorized his earlier routines from his hit records and his HBO specials. So are the 90s destined to be the filth decade? Clay may be the rough edge of popular entertainment, but he stands there, proud as well as profane, and he does not stand alone. Get used to it, America. We live in a four-letter world. The evidence is especially strong in two areas, and he has a long discussion of pop music and pop comedy. But one of the distressing things about the whole article is how it concludes. Let me just read that. Like them or not, today's blue comics and shock rockers know what is happening to this generation and are speaking to it. That is why they are popular. And that is why, by any close reading of the law, X-rated pop deserves its First Amendment cloak. No one can predict whether in a cool retrospective glance a decade or so from now, today's raunch will give evidence of artistic value. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And clearly because of its popularity, it does not affect, quote, contemporary community standards, end quote. A lot of the community is laughing 
and singing along. God is offended. If you are a parent, you can take responsibility for steering your children toward maturity. It's your job and nobody else's. After that, you're on your own. Entertainers shouldn't have to act as babysitters or Sunday school teachers. And the government should quit playing hall monitor to blue comics and metal defectives, rap radies, and the real artists among them who, through subtlety or obscenity, will have help us navigate our trip into the 21st century. What a sad ending to a terrible problem. I hope you're reading Cal Thomas in our daily newspaper. And I was so pleased at his article in Tuesday's paper. It's entitled, Chickens Are Coming Home to Roost, if you didn't read it. Let me just quote a little of it. The chickens are finally coming home to roost for the if-it-feels-good, do-it bunch. Some liberals who threw restraint to the wind and embraced an anything-goes philosophy are now upset by what they have wrought. In a recent syndicated column, Ellen Goodman is properly revolted by the filth masquerading as entertainment represented by comedians like Andrew Dice Clay. Goodman laments that Clay, with his bigoted and sexually offensive humor, is moving beyond the fringe into the mainstream. Seeing his video is like sliding down a chute of night soil, she concludes. You finish it, you finish in need of a shower and an explanation of why so many take this ride again and again and why there are so many other rides in this grotesque theme park of hatred and filth in the entertainment of the 90s. The explanation, Cal Thomas says, is actually quite simple. It has to do with removing the moral foundation from a society and engaging in a type of limbo dance designed to see how low you can go. Ellen Goodman wants to know what is happening when such things are becoming increasingly popular. The answer is that when there are no boundaries, no absolutes, no codes of conduct, and we might add, no discipline, people sink to their lowest level. It's not the nature of all men and women to be good. That's why there are laws. That's why we must teach our children to be honest and obedient. Kindness, racial tolerance, and turning the other cheek are acquired character traits. Hatred, racism, and revenge come with the human package. If good qualities come naturally to everyone, there would be no need to teach such qualities and to punish and discipline those who fail to exercise them. Right on target. 
Well, that's what we're living in. And that's what this whole subject of discipline is about. We've been working through the outline, which you have, I hope. If you don't, there's some out on the narthex table. That you need, as a disciplinarian, to role model what you intend to teach. That love and encouragement must precede correction. That you need to train your child to seek your approval and to delight in gaining wisdom. Last week we talked about the first part of establishing goals and got briefly into defining limitations. That's what discipline is. We talked about the kind of goals necessary for good discipline. Character goals, social goals, spiritual goals, financial goals, mental goals, and physical goals. And now, this morning and this evening, I want to deal with these defined limitations. Now, limitations will always be tested for security. That's point one under D on that first page. Limitations will be tested for security. That's part of what discipline must recognize. That every child will test your limitations. And when he tests it, it brings him security. Um, my daughter Judy, who's here in this service, brought the youngest of our grandchildren home from Brazil this last week. And we've been getting acquainted with our little 10-month-old granddaughter. And humanly speaking, she's probably the most perfect little girl ever born. But uh, despite that, as her mother wrote to us, and said, or spoke to us on the phone, Dad, she has an old nature. And as lovely as this precious little child is, she has to learn limitations. This week I was seated in my chair, just watching her and trying to entertain her, and she came over by me. Right by the chair is a floor lamp. And about halfway up the floor lamp, it has a little glass table and uh, a little brass ring around where she could get her fingers in. And she just delights to explore that little table. But it's a no-no because of the fact that she could pull it over on herself and, and not only damage the lamp, but hurt herself. And so... When she reached over for it across the little uh, footstool to protect it and keep it from her grasp, I said no with all the authority I could muster. She took her hand away and no sooner had the word uh, 
come then. Her hand was back. And another no, and I don't know how many there were until finally Grandma, who has great experience, came over and had a substitute in her hand and put it in her little hand, and she went about having learned some lesson at least that there have to be limitations and our children get security from that. No limitations always implies rejection of the child. If your child does not learn limitations, it isn't long until they'll be very insecure. Let loose in a world that they're not prepared to handle. Testing things and never knowing. And dear friends, it's not only important to make limitations, it's even more important to enforce them with firmness and love and discipline. Because if you don't, that child will think you just don't care enough to enforce what you feel to be the most important principles of living. And terrible insecurity comes into your child's life. It's just part of it. We must recognize that. And uh, when your child experiences the enforcement of those limitations, it's always very reinforcing to that child's life. Um, my wife has a very good illustration story out of her own experience, she tells. When our little girls were growing up, one of them had been very defiant toward her mother, very rebellious, and so she took her into one of the rooms in privacy and gave her a very, very hard spanking by my wife's standards. And uh, she had a great deal of guilt on her the whole day. And many of us find it very difficult to spank our children, which is unfortunate because it's a very biblical form of discipline but we can feel guilt about it. And she was feeling guilt all day. But as evening came, the closeness between Anita and that daughter became more and more evident. And when it came time to go to bed and the night prayers were to be said, my wife felt tears running down her face as she heard her daughter saying, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving me a mommy when I was naughty and disobedient. She spanked me and corrected me. And there was wonderful security and closeness that flowed in beautiful love between mother and daughter. 
That's what it's all about. Discipline establishes security. Point number three under D. Teaching obedience by firm enforcement of the word no. I wonder if you understand, and you've heard me talk about this before, just how desperately important that statement is. Teach obedience by firm enforcement of the word no. Would you hear me when I say this is a life or death matter? It's not an option. It has everything to do with what will happen in that child's life. The attitude that child will have toward God is all wrapped up in how you handle Define limits and enforce them with the word no. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. I mentioned, I think, that not only is it undesirable for little Christy to get a hold of that table, but that loose piece of glass, if she pulled it over on her, conceivably could shatter and she could be very badly injured and conceivably some freak accident even bad enough that her life could be taken. So it wasn't just a matter of we don't want you to touch it. Life or death could be involved in it. Perhaps I can illustrate it from a practice that I had as a owner of a dog when our little girls were growing up. And I'm a stickler on, if we're going to have a dog, he's going to learn obedience. And so I spent a great deal of time teaching that little dog that when I said come, she was to come. And it was always a thrill to me to watch how that, that little animal, as she learned obedience to her master, the joy and delight that seemed to come into her and how that she would just delight in obeying me. But the importance of it came to us when we were on vacation one year. When the girls and their dad decided to take a hike up a rather steep mountain slope and my wife stayed down by the camper that we had rented. And we took the little dog with us. But I wasn't watching too carefully as I exerted effort to go up this steep place and to keep my eye on my daughters. But all of a sudden I looked around and our little dog, who had come part way, had gotten confused and she saw the camper and she knew that was where her home is for now. And so she had turned around and was going as rapidly as she could toward the camper. And immediately I took it in as I glanced because coming from one direction was a car 
and coming from the other direction was another car, and all of it was going to coincide at the same moment that that little dog would dash out into the road across to the camper. And I can remember it like it was yesterday in the excitement of that moment, in the desperateness, in the life or deathness of it. I cupped my hands and I shouted her name as loudly as I could. Shadow, come! And immediately, that little dog right at the edge of the road, in obedience, wheeled and dashed to my side. Obedience is life or death. Spiritually. It's the most important lesson you ever learned as a Christian. Obedience. Let me read to you from the experience of a great honored king who forgot or perhaps who never learned that lesson. It's when Saul had led his troops against the Amalekites God had sent him as a tool of judgment in God's hand. He was told to destroy everything. All the animals and the sheep. And when Samuel comes after the battle's all over, he hears the bleating of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle. And he asks Saul about it. And this is what Saul says. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Religious. Spiritual, isn't it? Going to use them to worship God? Stop! Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy these wicked people the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord to obey 
is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. There's the black and white of it. That's what discipline is about. You must teach obedience. And one of the reasons this is roaring through the land is we have a generation of children that nobody cared enough about them to say no and to enforce it. Let's pray. Dear Father, Teach us to be obedient. Teach us to be a people who know how to discipline our children and to give them the security and the love that flows out of that. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.